You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good to see you. Have a seat. Have a seat. Open your Bibles if you have them. Hopefully you do. It is Easter. We're going to be in the gospel according to John. John's gospel, that is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you get to the book of Acts, you have gone too far. I am a big fan of stories. I love well-crafted stories. I believe that they are essential to communicating important truths. They help us connect with concepts that we would otherwise struggle to connect with. They confront us with moral dilemmas. They really force us to ask the question, Am I more like the hero of the story or the villain of this story? And and sometimes they're really just helpful, honestly, to to get us out of our own heads, right? That can certainly be helpful for sure. I remember when I was young, probably six, seven years old, uh, I was introduced to Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. I was at my grandparents' house. They had the original VHS set, the Han shot first set. You know what I'm talking about? And I remember they put on episode four, A New Hope, and I was instantly enamored with it. The story was just mesmerizing to me. All the characters and the planets and the Jedi, and like, oh, it was just unlike anything I'd ever seen in my entire life. And then I got to Empire Strikes Back and we learned who Luke's father was and then the whole redemption arc and Return of the Jedi. It was just instantly a favorite story of mine. Stories are powerful. They matter. They leave imprints on us. And certainly not stories just like Star Wars uh, are only good, but uh, Star Wars isn't even the best story. And, and so it got me thinking, what is the greatest story of all time? It's a question that's really hard to answer because it's not one that you can really answer objectively, right? Because stories may appeal to you more than they do me and, and vice versa. There, there are, there's a little bit of a beauty in the eye of the beholder thing going on with storytelling, which is what makes it so awesome. It hits different people in different ways. But one question we can objectively ask is, what's the best-selling story of all time? That is a measurable question, right? may not be the best story, but certainly the most purchased story. We can, we can definitely figure that one out. And I found, I looked at several lists. They all basically say the same thing. Here are the top five best-selling stories of all time. Number five, uh, controversial one in the church realm, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. J.K. Rowling, 107 million copies sold. Number four, The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry with 142 million stories. That's incredible, incredible. Number three, a personal favorite of mine, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien, 150 million copies sold. Number two, A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, 200 million copies sold. And number one, Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes at 500 million copies sold. Now I know, America's like, really? There are other people in the world actually that read (laughs) books, not in English. It is surprising, I know. Now look, as good as these stories are, I'm not buying it. Like, I'm not buying it. Lord of the Rings for sure up there for me, right? Uh, easy, number two, number three. But these are the best? I mean, there's just no way. There's no way. I'm convinced, and I, you know, I'm a little partial, right, because of who I am and what I do. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the greatest story ever told is the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. 
It is truly the most beautiful story when you really dig into it. It confronts us in so many ways. It forces us to consider as we're reading it, and we cross these different moral dilemmas, whether or not I'm more like the hero or more like the villain. And spoiler alert, we're more like the villain, right? <laughs> I believe it's the greatest story, primarily because it's the only story that whether or not you've ever heard it, whether or not you're even familiar with it, it affects everyone. This is a story that the impact of this story touches every single person who has ever lived and who will ever live. And unlike the other top five stories, it is not a work of fiction. It's anchored in history. Both secular and sacred historians attest to this. It has been preserved and handed down from generation to generation. Thousands of transcripts have been passed down through the years telling this story. And I should mention objectively, okay, while we're in the neighborhood, it is the best-selling story of all time. Don Quixote sold 500 million copies. The Bible has produced more than 5 billion copies. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's sold copies, right? The Gideons have put one in every hotel, and those are free. So, I mean, there's so many more out there that, that don't even count on this list. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through the latter part of John's gospel and unpack why I think this is the greatest story ever told. In fact, I titled the message this morning, The Greatest Story Ever Told, because every great story has specific components that make it truly compelling, and this one is certainly no different. It's at the top of the list. It has a little bit of everything. It's really an amazing story. And so I want to jump in this morning and ask the question, what makes this story so great? First, there is a secret plot. Every great story has to have a secret plot, in my opinion, in order for it to really grab your attention. And here's how it normally goes. The plot is normally meant to bring harm to the good guys, except the good guys are not aware of the secret plot, hence that it's secret, right? And so, but you as the reader are aware of it. You're seeing it developing. You're seeing the shady conversations behind closed doors. You're aware that it's happening, but usually the, the, the good guys in the story are blindsided by it. And that is mostly true for this story. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in. Jesus begins his three and a half year ministry on the earth. And as he goes, in the very beginning of it, he calls to himself 12 disciples who are gonna follow after him and learn from him and, and essentially be the ones who carry the message after the resurrection. And one of them is a, a man by the name of Judas. And what we learn about Judas pretty early on in John's gospel is that Judas is living sort of a double life, right? He follows Jesus, he's learning from Jesus, but he's also doing some shady stuff behind the scenes when no one else is looking. So for example, uh, John chapter 12, there's this really incredible scene where Mary and Martha, they're, they're sitting there with Jesus. Mary begins to pour out this perfume mixture onto Jesus' feet, this beautiful scene of, of love and commitment for the Lord. It's worth a lot of money. But it didn't matter how much it was worth because her love was worth infinitely more for her Lord. And in John chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, John just kind of cues us off right in the beginning, right? He says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, look at Judas. What a great guy. He's like, Why did she waste that perfume? We could have sold it. And we could have used that money to do some real ministry. But then John gives us a glimpse of what motivated him, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So the truth comes out. 
Judas isn't interested in the poor at all. He just knew that if it sold for 300 denarii, that was 300 more denarii that he could steal from. So already we see Judas spiraling into sin. There are these patterns of sinful behavior that are sort of behind the scenes that no one else is aware of. Jesus is, but he doesn't know that. And then there's something else going on behind the scenes as well. There's another group of individuals. They're not followers of Jesus. They're actually the religious leaders of Jesus' day. This would be equivalent to the pastors and seminary professors of Jesus' time. And they hated Jesus. They're called the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. They're, they're usually referred to in one of those four camps. They're all a little bit different, but they all kind of fall in the same uh, territory. And they hated Jesus. They hated him because he threatened their influence. Everything he did, in fact, was a threat to them. And so as soon as Jesus comes onto the scene, he begins performing miracles, he begins teaching with authority, and instantly they become filled with jealousy. And, and so what they would do is they would try and corner Jesus into these theological traps, try to get him to say something that was wrong, and they could never seem to get the upper hand on him. He was just always a step ahead of them, always made them look very foolish. And then the real kicker happens in John chapter 11. Uh, Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and it says that Jesus allows this to happen and then shows up onto the scene and raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a shocking and incredible demonstration of power in the Lord. In John 11, 47 and 48, it says, so the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They think, man, if everyone believes in Jesus, our power and our influence is gone. What are we going to do? Little discussion follows in verse 53. It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're like, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to knock him off. He's, he's too dangerous. He's too dangerous to everything that, that we hold dear. And so, look, the stage is set, right? We got Judas over here. He's stealing from Jesus. He thinks he's getting away with it. He's not. But he's just looking for opportunities to benefit himself. And then over here, we have this powerful group of religious leaders who want Jesus dead, and they're looking for someone to help them do it. It's a match made in not heaven. <laughs> and so both sides team up. The religious leaders want Judas to betray Jesus, turn him over to be killed, and in return, Judas gets the thing that he loves most, money. So they strike a deal. John 18.3, it says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there into the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. And after a brief conversation in this grouping, verse 12, it says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So one of his disciples and the chief priest form a secret plot, and it works. Jesus is brought away. He's arrested, and he's brought away. Now, I want to pause here for a couple moments and just make a couple of applications while we're in the neighborhood, because I think there's some things that we can get from these two groups of people. Number one, the love of money will eventually make you hostile to Jesus. This is one of the things that we learn from Judas. Judas' desire for more and more and more is ultimately the thing that opens him up to be willing to betray the Lord himself. He desires something, understand this, that is not only ungodly, it's actually hostile to Jesus. That's true for Judas. It is true for us as well. Whenever we are driven by the need for more and more money, that drive eventually pushes you to choose between honoring God or crucifying him. 
Now listen, I'm not saying making money is bad. It's not bad. And if God has blessed you with a high paying job, fantastic. Praise God. But when the deepest desire in the core of your being is always a craving for more and more, that drive, hear me, will, will eventually dominate your life and your choices and it never ends well. And listen, it doesn't happen overnight either. It's a slow drift into deeper and deeper sin. It began with Judas just taking a little bit of money here and there. It ended with Jesus on a cross. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen, God's desire for you is not for you to be rich, but to be righteous. He wants to transform you into the image of Christ, not the image of his crucifiers. The love of money will always lead you to hostility to the Lord. Here's the second thing we can learn, and we get this really more from the chief priests. Relationships built on a mutual desire to see someone else fail should be abandoned. The relationship between Judas and these religious leaders is built on a shared endeavor to bring Jesus down. Judas gets money out of it. They get to maintain religious control. Everyone wins at the expense of taking out Jesus. That's a whole basis of their relationship, a mutual desire to bring someone down. And this absolutely still happens today. Someone comes along, their very presence forces unwanted change in your life, and so what happens? You begin to link up with other people who also don't like that unwanted change, and what happens is the whole basis of that new relationship is built on shared disdain for another individual, a mutual desire to see that person fail, and so there begin to be these closed doors conversations, right? Text messages. You begin devising ways to set this person up for failure so we can get rid of them because they're ruining everything. And they're creating all kinds of change that I don't want. And listen, if you're in a relationship like that, you need to abandon it. It's not how Christ followers live. That's how Christ crucifiers live. What does Jesus say when there is a problem between you and another person? Matthew 18, 15. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And let's just call this what it is. Because at the end of the day, what this kind of relationship is built on is ultimately jealousy. That's what's going on with the leaders. They're just jealous Whenever jealousy rules your heart, folks, it's a bad thing. It's bad news. James 3.16, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Flee from it, the Bible says. Avoid it. Abandon relationships built on it at all cost. It will lead you to do things that you never imagined that you would do. Now, can you see already why this is the greatest story ever told? Already, it's just meddling with us, isn't it? It's just all up in our business. It forces us to consider how even 2,000 years later, we're really not that different from the bad guys. Every great story has a secret plot. Next, there's always a shocking betrayal. Now, as you're reading in John's gospel, you get a sense early on that Judas is going to betray Jesus. That doesn't really surprise anyone. But there is another person in this story that is ultimately going to betray Jesus as well. And it is shocking when it happens. It totally takes you by surprise. Anyone know who I'm talking about? Peter, absolutely. You would never expect Peter, right? I mean, he almost seems like the most committed person there is. Let me give you a few examples why this is so shocking. Uh, John 13, Jesus begins this practice of washing the disciples' feet. It's this incredible display of humility, right? lowering himself to the form of a servant to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. And you remember what Peter says in verse eight? You shall never wash my feet, Lord. 
In other words, I'm not worthy of this. You can't do this. In John chapter 13, verse 36 and 37, it says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Mm. Such devotion. John chapter 18, this is the passage we just looked at, where Jesus is arrested in the garden. When Jesus is betrayed and arrested, John 18.10, it says, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. By the way, I mean, it was the servant, Peter. He wasn't even doing anything. (laughs) Aim for the high priest next time. (laughs) When we read John, Peter seems like the guy that's all in. I'm not worthy for you to wash my feet, Lord. I'm going to lay down my life for you, Lord. I'm going to defend you, Lord. He's all in. And you're thinking, if anyone is going to be by Jesus' side to the rest of the story, it's Peter. And so it's surprising then that right after he cuts poor Malchus' ear off, Peter becomes a coward, just a total coward. Jesus is led to the chamber of a high priest. He's being questioned there, John 18, verses 15 and 16. It says, Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. By the way, that other disciple we think is John. John often refers to himself as the other or the beloved disciple. He never refers to himself by name. And it says, since that disciple, John, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So here's what happens. John is a known entity to the high priest. And so he's allowed to go into the chamber where they are questioning the Lord. Peter is kept at the door because they don't recognize him, which is actually kind of strange because you get the sense that, again, Peter's like the main guy and the high priest servant doesn't even know who he is. And so John has to double back and bring him in. And as he's coming in, verse 17, it says, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am, and I will fight to the death for him. Pulls the sword out. That's not what he says. He says, no, I'm not. And this is the part where you as the reader, you're shocked. You're thinking, no way, not Peter. Like he's got to have some other plan. There's no way this is happening. But it keeps getting worse. He's standing by the fire. He's trying to keep warm. Another servant comes up. And they say, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And again, he says, I am not. Now, it's not as clear in the English as it is the Greek. But these questions, the way they're formed in the Greek language, they anticipate a negative response. So it would be something more like this. You're not one of his disciples, right? You're expecting them to say, correct, I'm not. Right? There's a negative anticipated response. And so in some ways, these questions... They're a little bit easier to dodge the truth for Peter. He's being sort of set up in a way that it's easy to lie and say, no, I'm not, until the third person comes to question him. This time, it isn't a servant girl. It's the relative of poor Malchus, who by this time, to be fair, his ears put back on, right? Jesus heals him. But yeah, his, his like cousin or whoever. And this time, the question is formed differently in the Greek language. It's formed to anticipate a positive response. I saw you in the garden with him, didn't I? You're anticipating yes. And again, Peter denies it. 
And this time, he has to really mean it. There's no out given. He has to go all in and deny Jesus. Now, there are a lot of opinions on why Peter denies the Lord. Was he scared? Probably. Was he confused? Probably. Had his faith in Jesus wavered? I'm going to suggest that his faith did not waver. I think he had a lot, a lot, in fact, more faith than any of the other disciples in Jesus. The problem for Peter is it was the wrong Jesus. I think he had faith in who he believed Jesus was, and it just wasn't who Jesus was. I, I think he believed that Jesus is unstoppable. He is unbeatable. And if Jesus is unbeatable, and I'm close to him as one of his disciples, that means I'm unbeatable. And I'm protected from any outside problems. And the moment that that version of Jesus dissipates, it wrecks Peter. I remember in high school, there was this guy, really big guy, bully, just a mean, a mean dude. He's a great above me. And, and just a true bully. I mean, looking for fights all the time. And I was a pretty scrappy dude. I, I hung out with a lot of questionable people. I, this is a guy you don't want to fight. He's just a guy you avoid. And, and he had these two friends, these two shrimpy little guys, and they were just as loud and obnoxious as the big guy. And they would go around tormenting people and, and, and causing problems and stirring up trouble. And no one ever did anything about it because we knew if we fight the two shrimps, we got to fight the big guy as well. And we don't want to deal with the big guy. And I remember one year, I was a 10th grader. He, uh, the, the two shrimpy guys, they, uh, they picked a fight with another person a grade younger than me. So this is a ninth grader, they're 11th graders. And he quietly did not back down. And I'm just thinking, it's a death sentence, dude. You're gonna have to go up. And he was not a big guy. And so the plan was, they were gonna meet at this park after school and they were gonna show this kid a lesson. And of course, all of us as responsible high schoolers followed. <laughs> And so they began this confrontation. The big guy comes in. The two shrimpy guys are smirking kind of in the background, you know, talking trash. And this little ninth grader dismantles the bully. Apparently, he had, like, multiple years of martial arts. Yeah. He had, like, sparred in his backyard every day for two hours with his brothers. And I'm not kidding. Broke the guy's jaw. I mean, it was bad. And I will never forget... I will never forget the two shrimps running as fast as they could to their truck and peeling out, leaving the big guy on the ground. I think that's what Peter's doing here. I think in his mind, he's got the big guy on his side. No one takes down the big guy. No one takes down God's anointed, the Messiah. He's here to redeem. He's here to destroy Rome. He's here to restore us to glory. And so when Jesus is arrested and questioned and beaten, I think it craters Peter. Because he loves Jesus, but he's not even sure if he really knows him anymore. And I gotta be honest, I can't help but wonder if that's what's happened to some of you here this morning as well. You had this idea of who Jesus was supposed to be. He was supposed to give you what you needed to be happy. He was supposed to make sure that nothing bad happened to you. He was supposed to protect those who you love keep them well. He was supposed to make sure your kids didn't do anything too bad, like get arrested, do drugs, walk away from the church, whatever. 
And when life started happening to you and you began experiencing loss after loss after loss, it just cratered you. Because on the one hand, you thought, man, I love Jesus. And on the other hand, I'm not even sure who he is anymore. Because everything you've experienced is counter to what you thought being in a relationship with him meant. And so maybe like Peter, you've denied him. And it's shocking to you because you never thought in a million years you'd be the one like Peter to turn away from him. And you need to know this this morning, that Jesus did not turn his back on Peter and Jesus has not turned his back on you either. He hasn't. Is this story getting to any of you yet? It's a great story. It has a secret plot. It has a shocking betrayal. Third, it has a huge plot twist. This story has, in my opinion, one of the biggest plot twists. And I'm not talking about the resurrection. We're going to get to that in a minute. But this whole time you're reading John's gospel, you can count the number of people responsible for Jesus' death. Certainly Judas plays a role in it. Certainly the chief priests are responsible for it. Peter, to some degree, is when he denies Jesus. If you keep reading, you're introduced to another guy, a Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate, who... Uh, during his time investigating and questioning Jesus, he, he asks all these questions and he comes away thinking, this man's not even guilty. He's innocent. Are you sure you want me to crucify him? And they're like, yes, yeah. And he's like, okay, right? So <laughs> it's like a real weird conflict that like, he still does the wrong thing though, right? I mean, he knew, he was convinced and he still goes along with it. There's a lot of people, the mob even, like the mob of people who are yelling crucify. I mean, they're certainly responsible as well. There's a lot of people when you read this story that are complicit in the death of Jesus, but there's this huge twist because John tells us someone else is behind the scenes pulling the strings. Someone else has masterminded this entire thing from the beginning and no one else is aware of it. And it's the least person you would ever expect to be behind it all. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Go back to John chapter 10. This is right before the chief priests plot to kill him. Jesus says, starting in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That's us, by the way. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. But then look at verses 17 and 18. Here's the kicker. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, that I might take it up again. Here it is. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay my life down, and I have authority to take my life up again this charge I have received from my father. Who ordered the death of Jesus? It wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the chief priests. It wasn't the mob. It was God the father. He's the one who ultimately orders this thing in. Who carries out the death of Jesus? It wasn't Judas. It wasn't Pilate. It was Jesus. I mean, this just feels like a huge plot twist, but it really shouldn't surprise us. Jesus has been telling us this all along. Perhaps the greatest verse, well-known verse in all of history, John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's been saying it from the beginning. And why did God send Jesus to die? For eternal life. We often read 16 
We rarely lead or read John 3, 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is a critical component that Christians need to understand. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come do that. Right? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the world has been condemned, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everyone has been plagued by sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And do you know what the result of sin is? Death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's not only been saying this since the beginning of John, he's been saying it before John was ever even born. Psalm 22.16, a psalm written prophesying something about the Lord. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Jesus actually quotes verse one of this very psalm, Psalm 22, when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's interesting about this psalm is that if you read it all the way to the end, it's actually a psalm of victory. It's actually a psalm that announces victory over the enemies. So it must have been very strange hearing Jesus say this. If you were well-versed in the Old Testament at that time, you'd be thinking like, well, that's weird because that ends differently than how this seems like this is going to end. <laughs> While Jesus was on the cross, John 19, 28, he says, I'm thirsty. And verse 29, it says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. But this shouldn't surprise us. Psalm 69, 21 says, they offer me sour wine for my thirst. This is predicted. It's been there all along. What about Isaiah chapter 53? The whole chapter is about how Jesus would come as the suffering servant at the direction of the Father who would be crushed by the Father to suffer and die for his people. Have you ever watched one of those movies or read one of those books where something pivotal happens and it just blows you away? You are like just blown away by the total plot twist that takes place, knocks you out of your seat, just shocked by it, dumbfounded. And then you go back because you tell your friends, like, guys, you got to see this movie, right? You got to read this book. And so you go back and you watch it with them. And as you're watching, you're like, it was there the whole time. <laughs> like every detail was right in front of you and you didn't even realize it. That's what's going on here. All the clues were there the whole time. Jesus wasn't surprised by Judas' betrayal. He not only knew it would happen, he counted on it. It was a part of his plan. When people tried to intervene and stop Jesus' plan, Peter with his dumb sword and Malchus. <laughs> Do you remember what Jesus said, John 18, 11? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? It's an amazing plot twist. It's been there in front of us the whole time. No one saw it coming. Jesus plotted it all. He knew it was going to happen. He counted on it. He carried it out. No one has the authority to take Jesus' life from him. Not the mob, not the chief priests, not Pontius Pilate. No one has authority to take his life. Only Jesus has the authority to lay it down that he may take it up again. That's not even the best part of the story, though. It keeps getting better. The secret plot is exciting. The shocking betrayal is just that. It's shocking. It's an incredible plot twist, but in order for every story to be truly great, it has to have a great ending, right? 
Anyone seen Lost? Horrible. I mean, just <laughs> such promise. Again, it has to have a great ending. This one has the best of all possible endings. Okay, so understand, at this point, Jesus dies. This wild ride over the last few years with his disciples seems to be over. They're a complete mess. They're hanging out in a room, crying in their soup, right? And they're at the end of themselves. And it actually, at this point, seems like a pretty terrible ending. Everything they hoped for is gone. It is over. The dream is dead. The Messiah, we were wrong. He wasn't the Messiah. And then John 20, verse 1. This is now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. There's John again, by the way. And Mary said to him, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So the tomb is empty at this point. At this point, they think somebody has stolen Jesus' body, right? Peter and John uh, are, are convinced there's grave, because grave robbers were real. They, they've taken the Lord's body, and so we have to go and investigate. I love this, verse four. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just immortalizes this foot race into eternity, right? <laughs> no one will ever wonder who is faster between John and Peter because John has told us, I won the race. And then it says that both stooped down into the tomb and here's what made them believe. It wasn't, it wasn't the missing body. It wasn't the fulfillment of scripture. John actually tells them they didn't even understand what was going on yet in terms of scripture. It was the grave clothes and the face cloth. And we're not told specifically why, but when they saw them folded up, it says that John believed. Side note, how thoughtful of the Lord Jesus? Like first thing he does after coming back to life is folds his laundry, which is a perfect son of God. I have to bribe my children to do anything with laundry. There's a lot of ideas about why John believed. Some say that, that the folded clothes symbolized victory over death. No more need for them. Others uh, say that this was Jesus' way of, of letting them know that he, his body wasn't stolen by the grave robbers because if you're stealing a body, there's no way you're undressing them and there's no way you're folding the laundry, right? You're trying to get in and out of there. Here's why I think he believed. John had spent several years with Jesus. He had, he had traveled with Jesus. He'd eaten meals with Jesus countless times. They had laughed together. They had slept in the same areas together. They did life together. They were familiar with the small details of their lives. You know this. If you've lived with someone, you pick up on these little nuances, right? Just these little things that you just know, like, oh, yeah. Like, I, Jessica and I have been married 15 years. There's little things that I know, like, that was Jess. Um, there's probably a lot of little things she knows. Really. That was Derek, right? <laughs> John knew the habits of Jesus. They were, they were intimate friends. Jesus had a way of doing things, including folding his clothes. And so I think that when John went in the tomb and he saw them folded like he had seen them folded a hundred times before, he knew Jesus is alive. I don't know how. I don't know what happened. I've seen him do this once before with Lazarus, so I know it's at least possible, but I know for sure that this is how Jesus folds his clothes. He is alive. The resurrection is confirmed for him because of his intimate relationship with him. That's what does it. And listen, 
The Lord desires an intimate relationship with you as well. Resurrection is the single greatest, best of all possible endings we could ever ask for. If Jesus is dead, hear me, there's no hope. There is nothing good. There is no good news. If Jesus is not risen, here's what that means. Your faith is meaningless, number one. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, meaningless, without substance. It's useless. Number two, you're still in sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, B says, if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sin. You have no atonement. You have no redemption. You have no propitiation for sin. There's been nothing that has happened. You're still separated from God. Number three, believers that have already died are in hell. 1 Corinthians 15, 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They died separated from God. It's over. And number four, you will suffer unnecessarily. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because historically Christians suffer for their faith. Historically, we have been hated and killed and mocked. And Paul is saying, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten. And it's going to be for nothing. It's going to be for nothing. In fact, verse 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But if Jesus is raised, here's what that means. Number one, you can have forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Hear me when I say this. That means that every single bad thing that you have ever done, everything that you are ashamed of, that you would never tell anyone in a million years because of fear of what they might think of you, everything you believe about yourself that makes you unlovable, all of it is forgiven because Jesus conquered the grave. Yes. And that's only the first thing. I have three more. You can have peace as well. Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peter is actually going to go on to say in 1 Peter, cast all of your anxieties on him. Now listen, you can only do that if he's alive. If Jesus is still in the tomb, you can cast your anxieties on him all you want. It's not going to make a bit of difference. But if he's raised, then he takes them. Gone forever. Number three, you can have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 26, after his resurrection and ascension, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What, what need would there be for the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance anything Jesus said if half of what he said isn't true? But he's been raised. And if he's been raised, then the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us when we come to faith in him of all that he has said. And number four, you can have eternal life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Here's the reality. This is not only the greatest story ever told. This is the greatest story still being told. Because there's still time right now. 
right now. You can receive all the benefits of the resurrection right now. You can have forgiveness this morning. You can have peace this morning. You can have eternal life this morning. You can have the Holy Spirit this morning. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let me ask you a question. What is stopping you this morning? You're on the edge. You're standing on the edge, listening to the greatest story ever told. What is stopping you? Some of you are like Judas. You've been consumed with worldly things that are ultimately going to fail you. Some of you are like Peter. You thought you loved Jesus, and then life got hard, and now you're not so sure. Some of you are dying on the inside in search of anything that will make sense of any of this. And the only thing that makes sense of any of the pain and suffering that you will experience in your life is the cross and the empty tomb. Today can be that day. Today, now can be that time where you look back 20, 30, 40 years from now and you think that was the day that the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and I bowed in submission before him and everything changed. The worship team is gonna come up here and lead us in one last song. And if you feel led to give your life to Jesus this morning, again, would you let us know? We want to pray for you. We want to walk with you. We want to help you get to that next step. And if any of you desire to be baptized, again, Brian is over there. No pressure. But would you let us know if you make a decision for faith today? And and if not, if you are firm in your faith and you love the Lord and you are here to celebrate, then would you celebrate and would you pray that God would, by his Holy Spirit, break the hearts of those whom God is after this morning. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the cross that accomplishes forgiveness, redemption, hope, peace, life. Thank you that we are no longer strangers to you, but that you've made us a part of your family as adopted sons and daughters. I pray this morning, God, for those who are just not sure. They've experienced a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, and they're they're just not really sure about any of this. And I pray, God, that the voice of your Holy Spirit that's so unmistakable would break through those barriers of doubt and skepticism, and that by faith they would take that step forward. They would come up and, and pray and, and be seen and be known and be accepted right where they are. How we love you, how we thank you. Yours is the name that is above all names, the name that one day every knee shall bow before and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. How we thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Jesus' name.